You're listening to the Try and Tackle podcast with your host, Province Sports Mobile Editor, Patrick Johnston. Welcome back to the Try and Tackle podcast. It's January 19th. As always, indeed, I am Patrick Johnston here in beautiful Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And on the line, as always, our good friend, Curtis Reed, down in Seattle from This Is American Rugby. Curtis, how are you? I'm doing well. Getting ready for some junior hockey action, I hear. Absolutely, that Mad Barzal. I think he can play. Yeah, yeah, man. That's uh, that's that's an exciting team to watch. You got down there in Seattle, and you know, nice that you can look at things other than rugby, I suppose. Yep. So since we uh, we last uh, spoke, there's been a lot of change, shall we say, on both both sides of the border. Um, you know, obviously, lots of turnover in Rugby Canada, but we'll come to that in a second. But let's 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 start off with the kind of the interesting. I would say on the whole positive news, although I know it's going to probably go in a few different directions, USA Rugby has a new head coach. Yeah, John Mitchell, I think, uh, you know, lots to talk about it with that move. There's going to be people on both sides of the fence, you know, those that think it's going to be a great hire, really revolutionary, others that are going to have a lot of trepidation because of his past. I think uh, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. I mean, the Eagles were almost always going to go with a new coach. There was a question about whether they'd go with a, <clears throat> excuse me, a two-year caretaker role like uh, Kieran Crowley was supposed to have, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, I'm sure. But um, you know, there's some questions about Tolkien would stick around, but ultimately they decided to go with uh, somebody else and a big name in in John Mitchell. Um, he brings a lot of experience, a lot of good overseas um, tips and techniques and trainings that could really be implemented, I think, to a U.S. team that's becoming more and more professionalized. Um, but at the same time, you know, it's not just him. I think it's any coach that comes into a country without a lot of experience. They have to learn the culture. They kind of have to adapt to the players and you know, there's got to be some trepidation given John Mitchell's past about whether that transition can be smooth or not. You, you know, we know all about the sort of success with the All Blacks, you know, was it almost it's 12 years ago, really. Um, you know, and, and he's coached in a lot of places, but he's had difficult departures from just about every place he's gone. And uh, he, he clearly... He has a clear sense of what kind of coach he wants to be and what, what he brings to the table. Uh, you know, it was interesting as you and I have kind of chatted offline over the last couple of weeks over where this might, uh, you know, what or how this might play out, I suppose. And then, you know, the more and more we look into it, it, it is, it, it, there's definitely a clear picture of what this guy's about. And he's very much about, you know, having a, a united culture that fits his own image of what that is, you know, and I, I think a lot of people would suggest that it's not necessarily the most modern approach. Um, and, and, you know, I found myself thinking about, uh, you know, the criticisms of, of him having tried to instill what they called a booze culture in a few places. And I think about his departure from the all blacks in, uh, in 2003 after the world cup, him and Graham Henry coming in, and some of the comments that Wayne Smith made, so Wayne Smith, of course, had been the coach of the All Blacks, had worked with Graham Henry as well. Uh, some of the comments that Henry made about how the team felt about itself uh, 
in 2004 and the, the sort of way they took care of themselves and how they had to kind of change that culture around. And, and it took a long time for, uh, for that to happen. And, and so, I mean, I know obviously this is, that, you know, that's years past now, but again, there are these sort of questions about, you know, how well things went at the end of his time in the Western Force. You look at the Western Force when he came into Super Rugby, the team was terrible to start with. That was expected from an expansion team. But within two seasons, he put them up middle of the table. And to me, that in as competitive a league as Super Rugby can be, to make yourself a team that was in the mix was an impressive feat. He, the guy has gotten some results. Uh, you know, he, he coached the Lions and, and the Golden Lions in South Africa. Didn't have the easiest departure there. But at the same time, got some results. Not, uh, you know, with... with, with you know, turn teams around that hadn't been doing very well. So it, it, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out and how he meshes. The, the, the question I really have, and maybe, you know, I, I know it's hard for you because we really haven't assessed, but as you've been suggesting, is, is the amount of work that's required to make a team in North America work. The amount of extra uh, travel you have to do, the way you have to recruit your players it's such a different mentality. Uh, you know, I, I kind of wonder if, if he's going to enjoy that very much. Yeah, and, you know, as if we chatted offline and I've kind of mentioned, I think it's really difficult to be a coach of a, a North American team and not live in the country. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't know what John Mitchell's plans are. We can only kind of go off what's maybe been hinted at or suggested in reports that, you know, he's not ready to move his family, which, you know, means a lot of travel time back to South Africa or, or wherever they're going to be. Um, you know, it's so difficult. I mean, you're talking about going from Denver to Seattle, to California, to New York, all these places you got to go to see players, to expand your player pool. We can't just have a 30 person domestic player pool. It's got to be 200 pro rugby is certainly going to help in that regard, but um, you know, it's a, it's a long, tough job that's going to take a lot of effort. And I think for as much as maybe Mike Tolkien didn't get the results that people were hoping for, um, especially against some bigger name teams, I think that loss to South Africa at the World Cup kind of really hurt his image overall, even though we've discussed that at length that, you know, that was kind of a game that you were going to lose. So you may as well save it for your best. But that's discussion for another day. I think one of the things that Mike Tolkien doesn't really get credit for is he did build a really solid team culture, whether it was the overseas guys coming in, knowing they still had to earn their place or whether it was a domestic guy knowing, Hey, if I work hard throughout the year, I'm going to get noticed first of all. And then I could potentially get called into camp and I could potentially earn a starting spot. And I think that's really what makes teams like Canada and the U S that have large domestic bases, along with a few foreign overseas players really work is when you have those domestic guys have that buy-in um, and they're really working hard and pushing each other and getting better. Um, I truly believe, you know, that's what drives competitions like the CRC and what's going to drive pro rugby is these domestic guys thinking I can make the Eagles if I work hard. So it'll be interesting to see if John Mitchell comes in and kind of tries to tap maybe some U S eligibles overseas um, 
or how he handles that domestic player situation to see if he can really incentivize those guys. I think the way that Mike Tolkien had, do you think, uh, you know, there's anything to be read into Chris Wiles? I mean, I know today he announced his international retirement from 15s. Anyway, is there any connection there? You think? Um, I think personally, it's more coincidental. I think, uh, you know, Chris Wiles has served USA rugby for a long time. I mentioned here, I've mentioned elsewhere and I'll mention it until somebody else replaces him. I think he's the greatest Eagle of all time, just based off his leadership. Um, you know, he's been doing double duty for the last 10 years, playing club rugby, most of it with Saracens and then playing summers in the U S he just got married not that long ago. Um, you know, he got married just before uh, he went to NACRA sevens in Olympic qualifying. So, you know, I think he's just in a point in his life where he wants to give it one last go at the Olympics, um, just in that training camp before Rio to see if he can make the team. And then just to focus on Saracens and kind of his business interests. So I really don't think it's related um, to the Mitchell hire. I just think it's a point in his life where it'll move on. I think only because he was captain this is kind of maybe the cynical part of me only because he was captain that an announcement was made. I mean, Mike Petrie, Lou Stanfield, a lot of these other guys have retired from international play as well, but there's no announcement there. So I really think we got an announcement because, you know, Wiles was captain. Um, but I really don't see the two related. Uh, let's shift north of the border. Let's talk about uh, the sort of ongoing travails of rugby Canada. Obviously, wrote a piece uh, last week. I, I got to speak with Kieran Crowley and talked about his his perspective. I'm actually kind of curious about uh, your sort of reaction to everything that's gone on uh, up, up, up this way. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of chaos, isn't it, right now? Uh, you know, it's the whole situation with Kieran Crowley is, is pretty odd, as you've written about. You know, you can't really blame Kieran Crowley for taking a job in a, in a pro league over in Europe, even if it was, is with, you know, one of the Italian pro 12 sides, no offense to them, but, um, you know, it's, uh, just kind of an odd situation that you would hope an organization wouldn't find itself in. And to me, it seems that it really starts from the top and, and not being able to find a, uh, a new CEO or, um, Head boss, I forget what the exact title the, the, is. Yeah, it's the CEO. The CEO is the title, and you know, I mean, I think that's that's very well put. That you know, I mean, I mean, it's not like that departure caught them all by surprise, but at a certain level, you know, I mean, Graham Brown had been in charge for a decade, and and uh, you know, the board, I guess, were guys that you know were pretty loyal to him and had known him for a long time, and um, you know, it's been interesting talking to people in the aftermath and. You know, I think we can look at the overall record and say, you know, things have been difficult in Canadian rugby for quite some time. And I think people have been unwilling to talk about it. And, and you know, now we're facing it. And, you know, there's there's lots of anger and there's lots of frustration. But there's also a lot of people I'm starting to see sort of starting to put their hand up and say, no, we've got to fix this. And this is a problem that we need to make happen. Um, but at the same time, you need strong leadership. And right now they haven't had a CEO, uh, you know, really since since before the World Cup. Uh, you know, Graham Brown stayed through the end of it, but, but, you know, he was over there and, you know, they've had Mark Lemon, who's essentially the chief marketing officer sitting as the CEO and, and, you know, it's been kind of treading water a little bit. And, 
you know, one of the things that came up, <clears throat> Crowley brought it up. It came up in the in the press conference as well that they held when he was renewed, which was for actually, if you really do the math on it, it was only a seventeen month extension. And, and you know, he himself, sa- you know, said to me, you know, that wasn't he wasn't all that keen on it. He understood why they were making it the way they did, but he said honestly, you know, I've got to take more security. It was two, it's two years plus. Uh, two-year option that he has with Treviso. And, and, you know, it's a new challenge. I think from a coaching standpoint, that alone was interesting to him. Um, but then it comes back to that question of funding. And, and you know, the Rugby Canada guys have been telling me that there's there's somebody on the way that it's going to happen. I, I, you know, I asked Matt Davey outright when I talked to him last week. This is the guy that now owns the, the Otega Highlanders. I said, are you going to be funding this team? And he, he, he didn't say no, but he sort of made it clear. Listen, I have to, you know, to do something like that, he'd have to see the right kind of plan and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, I, I don't think it's something they haven't talked about, but at the same time, they, they're being careful with and, and everybody's being careful with. And, and, you know, there are other people around in, in Vancouver, for instance, that have some interest in the overall picture and are thinking about making things happen. And, you know, we'll see how things play out. But um, the money question is everything. And, and, you know, right now, if you're an outside investor, the fact that there isn't a CEO that's permanent to go talk to, you know, that has to be concerning as well. That, that is hard. It's got to be something they've got to fix. And, uh, you know, I, and I think they, you know, everybody involved would be the first person to tell you that. They know that it doesn't look good right now but you know in the end um they've got to they've got to get it sorted you know you look at this team that's likely to be announced later this week or or uh or uh, early next week for the arc and it's going to be a very very young team and you know that that's just literally the logistics of it that you know the, the 20 some overseas professionals are not going to be playing and you know you've got to find guys that uh are keen and interested and that the truth of the matter is it's there, there, there are some out there, you know. The CRC, the CRC was sort of highly valued, and I think, I think Crowley, you know, was happy with where it had gotten to, but it still needed work. It still isn't perfect. Um, it's an expensive program that doesn't generate any of its own revenue. It, you know, they're fortunate that they do have World Rugby money that's effectively assigned to running things like that. But you know, World Rugby money is not does not pay salaries. The only money that pays salaries in this country is the off the, own the podium money, and own the podium went and told, um, went and told Rugby Canada that they couldn't use their sevens players to play fifteens anymore, because these that money was to get to the Olympics, and was fifteens involved in getting to the Olympics? No, it's not, and that's how that played out. So, you know, the, it comes back again to what you were saying that there's a lot of a lot of kind of issues to be sorted out on that financial side, and, and it starts at the very top. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's got to get sorted out at the top. But one of the things looking from the outside into the Canadian situation is, you know, you may have a men's program that's a little bit in shambles, but you have a fantastic women's program. And to be able to have the women's coach just kind of step in and be a caretaker of the men's team and have that infrastructure is something that we're a little bit jealous of. I, um, you know, the women's team is going to probably medal in Rio. The 15s team is really a world powerhouse now. And uh, I think there's something to be said for really kind of investing in that where, you know, on our side, the women get together maybe twice a year and that's it, you know. And uh, so I think there's something to be said for investing in all forms of the game and it will pay dividends. Um, on both sides is the way that uh, 
Francois Rattier has been able to step up and, and coach the ARC team for Canada. That's a great point. The women's program, you know, we, it, it really does need to be talked about. It, it's a world-leading situation. Both those coaches, they, they will proudly tell you, you know, how well things run on their side of the table, that they're very proud of the work that, that development coaches, that university coaches have done on the women's side of the game. You know, but at the same time, they're aware of how precarious their position is, that it's it's a, a program that has delivered some results. But the women's team, you know, they, they promised, you know, the board has promised the women's team won't be paying to play anymore. But until last year, they were paying to play. And if you're the second best team in the world, that is simply unacceptable. Um, and, yeah. and, and so that, you know, there's another challenge that they've got to figure that out. <clears throat> and, you know, you talk to people internally and there's frustrations over how money's divided and how it's doled out. But, you know, none of that adds up to the amount of money you need to run that women's team proper, that 15s team properly. And, you know, the same thing for the men's 15s as well. So, you know, it, it, there are lots of good things. There is absolutely no doubt about that. Um, but, but the overall picture needs some hustle, needs some work, and it needs some leadership. So, you know, we'll see how that goes out. We'll see how that plays out. Um, just before we go, we should, of course, shift. You mentioned already pro rugby. Uh, what's the latest there? You know, I mean, um, Matt Davey mentioned to me, you know, that he's definitely watching stuff, how things are playing out over here. I think they're, you know, I don't know if he's talked to Doug Schoeninger, but, but you know, I think there's definitely interest on his side of the pond on how that might play out. Certainly, you know, spoke positively about North America's potential as a super rugby expansion spot. Of course, they've got to make sure that Argentinian and, and Japanese teams get launched properly. But, you know, it's not it's nothing new. It's not a surprise that they are interested in putting teams in North America. You know, they that doesn't mean they're going to, but it's certainly a thought. But, you know, pro rugby is set to launch supposedly in a couple of months. Uh, what's what's going on there? Yeah, it's it's going to launch. I mean, I've talked to several people and vetted things, and it's going to happen. It's uh, the issue that they've run into is a couple of issues, uh, but the main one is venues. Um, you know, it's I really only learned this after getting into the sports and covering rugby heavily, but. If you want to play somewhere and you book a venue, you got to book the right venue. Um, and this is what the pro rugby people are telling me that they're not going to book, you know, Lincoln Financial Field in Philadelphia just because it works and it's available. They're going to, they got to find the right size venue. They have to find one that's either world rugby turf approved or natural grass, which is very difficult in most of North America to find that. Um, you know, they got to find the right size venue. And then when they do find the venue, it's a lot of the small negotiations, you know, how do they handle parking? How do they handle tickets? And, and for kind of a three man operation, it's bogged up a lot of pro rugby's time. And so from what I understand, the rest of the venue should be announced hopefully this week in advance of the national development summit here in the U S if not next week. Um, but once venues are announced, everything else is pretty much in place. They have coaches. They kind of know where they want them. They have the first group of players um, ready to go. What's been conveyed to me is that they can't sign any of those coaches or can't sign any of those players until they have venue agreements so that they know where they can put those players. Um so all in all, just expect, I think, uh, a deluge of announcements over the next little bit, starting with venues and then coaches and players. And it'll be crunch time up until the opening kick, but uh, it's going to happen. 
Uh, just since you mentioned it, I mean, announcements coming from Canada Sevens as well. There's uh, obviously local, uh, local, uh, you know, non-official stuff happening already. I've posted a couple links on there on, my, on the Facebook page. They're trying to tackle uh, on, on Facebook. Uh, the official ones, you know, I, I, I was told some time ago that they were coming. Um, a couple of people have kind of mentioned to me, oh, you know, keep your heads up. There's something coming soon. So, you know, by the time people listen to this, maybe they'll already uh, have made an announcement. But st- stuff's coming together. I know that there, you know, there's there are frustrations with, you know, kind of the pace organization. But I, I, the overall feeling, I, I would say, on most most sides of this is that they want to make sure they get things right and they don't want to aim too high, which is not always the most pleasing thing to hear. But that's what they're going with. You know that they want to get things right in year one, and then do a much bigger event in year two. Um, you know, take that for what it's worth. Uh, but but in terms of ticket sales, you know, I, I think they're you know they're they're already at twenty one thousand for each day at PC Place, which is a fantastic number. And, and I have a really strong suspicion that they're gonna that they're gonna get well up there. They might even get close to the twenty seven or so. That would be a full lower bowl at BC Place, and and that would just look absolutely fantastic. Uh, and what a what a kind of growth point it would be for rugby in Canada to see uh, a, a tournament run like that with the profile it has, uh, filling filling the stadium as they are. There there really seems to be a really strong Team Canada feeling in Vancouver again. You know, I think people you know still think about the Olympics. It's all now almost six years ago, but they think about the Olympics. Uh, you know, Soccer Canada is going for a massive crowd. They're hosting. Uh, Mexico in a World Cup qualifier at the end of March, and they're expecting a massive crowd there. They've opened the upper bowl. They're they're going to get something like forty thousand people in there, which you know is an amazing thing if you think about soccer in Canada, men's soccer especially. That's never been the case before. Uh, the women's team has always drawn good numbers, at least it has in the last kind of five ten years. But the men's team is now pulling around. So you know, rugby is on a is in that kind of same frame. I think people kind of see it in the same way that it's this kind of underdog sport. It's a sport they enjoy. That they can see Team Canada doing pretty well, um, and you know I think the other thing that Rugby Canada is pointing to is how well the Canada Women's Sevens did last year. You know, huge crowds both days, smaller venue of course, but big crowds both days, good atmosphere, an atmosphere unlike they you know World Rugby had seen anywhere else on the Women's Series. So you know, there's there's lots of good little things things to be built on. A lot of work that needs to be done off the field for sure, uh, but we'll see how things go. Curtis, uh, any last thoughts from you before we go? Yeah, just on the similar lines, I just think that having Vancouver and, and Las Vegas together, it's really going to feed off each other. Not only from a, oh, not only from a, sorry, I just got interrupted by my son there. Uh, not only from you know teams traveling back and forth in Vancouver and loving, it, but I think the the elite non-series teams kind of be able to get in two good stretches. Um, it's really going to play off each other and, and grow over the next few years. And I think it's going to be fun to watch both of those um, stops continue to excel. All right, folks, as always, you can find Curtis on Twitter at this is Amer rugby. This is American Uh He's also on Facebook. This is American rugby. You can find me on Facebook. As I mentioned, try and tackle uh, on Twitter at rising action. Uh, those podcast courses on iTunes, it's on Stitcher, it's on TuneIn. We hope to again, uh, hope to see you again next time. You've been listening to the Province Sports Try and Tackle podcast with your host, Province Sports Mobile Editor Patrick Johnston. 
find this and other great sports podcasts in iTunes or subscribe to using your favorite podcast app by clicking the links available on the thepromisepodcasts.com.